generous evidence of meals he had recently consumed. Since reaching the age of 60 myself, I have come to understand that the wanton distribution of foodstuffs about the person has about it a chilling inevitability, and suddenly I have some sort of fellow feeling for my former joint headmaster. As far as I can remember, Brooke's subject was Latin, but it also fell to him to administer beatings and to warn us about the (coughs) changes that were about to occur in our bodies. In the final week of each boy's sojourn at Woodlands, he would be called into Brooke's office for what might loosely be styled sex education. There is little doubt that we needed this, but Brooke... I'm afraid, did little to clarify the situation, possibly because he didn't really know much about sex himself. When you get to your next school, he'd say, you'll find that uh, if you have a jug already filled with water and you add more water to it, it will overflow. Well, good luck, consults a piece of paper, at uh, Shrewsbury. If it hadn't have been for one or two happy accidents in the intervening years, I could easily have alarmed Sheila on our wedding night by smiling winsomely and cooing that I'd pop upstairs and prepare the jug of water. Sheila and I had been caught in the traffic and it was early evening when we reached our destination, the site at Eastner Castle of the Big Chill Festival, where I was scheduled to play records an hour later. As we stood outside the tent, someone in the crowd started applauding. Within a few seconds, several hundred other festival-goers had joined in. This, I thought, only happens in Cliff Richard films. They probably think you're Bob Harris, Sheila whispered. I'm often mistaken for Bob Harris, despite the fact that we look very little alike. He is slimmer and redder than I am, and taller, yet hardly a week passes by without someone saying to me, I remember you, I never used to miss the whistle test, you know. I do believe you've got me confused... I start, but they're off again. Yes, never missed it, what about the time? I've asked Bob whether he ever encounters anyone who believes he is me. He assures me that he does not. I left Woodlands in 1953 and went to Shrewsbury School. Looking back on it, I rather suspect that I actually failed the common entrance exam for Shrewsbury, but was nodded through because my father, Uncle Bill and both grandfathers had been at the school, serving their time there without anything that could be classed as distinction. I didn't much care for being beaten, but I was certainly used to it. At home, Mother had beaten me regularly from a very early age. She hadn't wanted me to grow up to be a sissy she explained years later. Most of the beatings I received from Hagger were for offences which would have been offences in no other place on earth, except perhaps for another public school. Some rules were so arcane that to this day I don't know what they meant. For example, only members of the school first aid were, I believed, allowed to have clocks on their socks. If you have any idea what this means, I'd prefer it if you kept the information to yourself. I like the picture I've had in my head for 50 years of clocks on socks, and I don't want mere reality to spoil it.
We knew boys at Shrewsbury also had to cope with dowling, colour tests and, unless we were unfortunate enough to be grossly deformed, with being loved. Dowling derived from the Greek word for slave, and in your first two years at school you could be compelled to do almost any task by either a house prefect or your study monitor. These tasks could range from boiling an egg or cleaning shoes to giving someone a hand job. A boy called Cox was my study monitor for a year, and amongst the tasks he assigned me on a regular basis was that of boot polishing his bicycle tyres. When he had judged them shiny enough, he would take his bike for a short spin in the mud before telling me to start again. Another study monitor, and although it's tempting to name him, I won't, was, I think, the only genuinely amoral person I've ever met. Towards the end of our time together, he compelled me to meet him in a public toilet in the cemetery outside Shrewsbury, where he raped me. Oddly enough, I think I had become so much accustomed to systematic sexual abuse that I wasn't especially traumatised by the experience. However, it was many years before I could bring myself to tell anyone what had happened to me, and when I did tell Sheila, my wife, one afternoon in the 80s as we drove through Shrewsbury and past the cemetery, she found it, I think, more upsetting than I ever did. We have not spoken of it again. I eventually reached the fifth form with comparable lack of distinction and was told that if I didn't buck up my ideas and get on with some work, I wouldn't go to university. But I didn't buck up my ideas. I've always described the moment in which I first heard Elvis as being the defining moment in my life. It's certainly up there with the first time I saw Sheila and Alan Kennedy's goal against Real Madrid in the Parc de France anyway. Elvis was described as the new American singing sensation, and that certainly hit the nail on the head. It may not sound like much today, but Heartbreak Hotel had the effect on me of a naked extraterrestrial walking through the door and announcing that he, she, was going to live with me for the rest of my life. Elvis walked in, and nothing was ever the same again. particularly interested in rain this week, as on Sunday we are having a party to celebrate my becoming a pensioner. And what is, according to experts in the field, our Pearl anniversary. There will be a marquee in the field across the road, and the other field across the road will be available for car parking, and we don't want some Glastonbury-style mudfest. If only because the possibility exists that the East Anglian might get to hear of it and print a brief paragraph under the caption, DJ in a spin. They've done this several times before in stories about us, and enough is enough, guys. Oh, no. Not self-deprecating again. This time it's in the Independent on Sunday magazine. 
Sometimes being self-deprecating is perceived as good, as in, John turned, illuminating his fine features and smiled a self-deprecating smile. No, no, you are too, too kind. I played virtually no part in the restoration of the monarchy, he protested. At other times, self-deprecating ain't so good, as in, whereupon the air turns self-deprecating. The Independent on Sunday, 29th of August, 2004. This time it's my oft-repeated remark to the effect that you can see what, for reference purposes, we'll call my career. As based on either a selfless dedication to the cause of public service broadcasting or a shocking lack of ambition. I can see that I've said this far too many times, but the reason is that it's true. I am genuinely, ridiculously proud to have worked for the BBC for so long, and I am grateful that I have been paid not the spectacular sums imagined by some critics, but enough that we can afford to run four cars. Run is a little inaccurate, as two of the cars are in sheds in the garden, with every prospect of remaining there. I'm also grateful that in all the 37 years I've worked for Radio 1, no one in management has ever said to me that I should either be playing something that I'm not playing or not playing something that I am. Admittedly, one junior management dork and one DJ from the aspirant showbiz side of the DJ track did tell me in the early days of hip-hop that I shouldn't play it on the radio because it was, and I quote, the music of black criminals. This, I felt, told me more about the individual's concern than it did about hip-hop. Apart from that, and students stand by, because here comes one of my guiding principles for getting along just fine.